What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ladies, hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show, The Traditionalist. We are recording on Friday, November 5th in the year 2021, a few days after a very consequential election day in America. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. I am the director of the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. More importantly, much more importantly, the namesake of this program, Victor Davis Hanson, is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Many more things. We'll get to that later, too. But one of them is author of the best-selling new book, The Dying Citizen. We'll talk about that a little later. Today on The Traditionalist, we'll be talking a lot about politics, of course, and the election and the consequences of those elections. We'll also be talking about Joe Biden, the liar. Let's talk about that first, right after this important message. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, They've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show, the traditionalist Victor. Hello, my friend. It's been quite a week. Yes, it has. And and you've written a lot about these elections and their consequences. And there's so much meaty stuff to get into there. But first, I'd like to just get a little opinion from you about Joe Biden, a liar. I'm going to call him a liar. Wow. I've called him that before. That's not, (laughs) you're a man of the faith, the Orthodox faith. Well, how can you say that? I'm not Orthodox, I'm Roman. So uh, (laughs) I meant the Orthodox Roman. You're not an apostate. That's what I'm saying. I'm not. I'm just a sinner. But Joe Biden, who spent earlier this week when we're recording with with the Pope, of all people who told him he was a good Catholic as he supports uh, abortion on demand. um, 
about the spending bill. Now, he, Biden went off to Europe for this climate change conference. Before he left, he said there was a deal imminent, just had to work out the minor details for the massive trillions of dollars spending. Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema would be on board. But it turned out to be just another lie. No, they're there. Another lie, by the way, Victor, and then you can ruminate on this aspect of the president's character. Clearly, the Justice Department was working on these negotiations to pay illegal aliens $450,000 in legal settlements for families being separated. Biden said, absolutely not. That, that wasn't happening. You know, Victor, I don't know if he said today was Friday, I'd check the calendar. What do you think about this man? I know what you think, but would you share a little thought here before we talk about the elections? Yeah, I, I think it's important to distinguish cognitive challenges from innate Bidenism. And sometimes they blend, sometimes they can be distinguished. Joe Biden always had a problem with the truth. Remember, he was from his earliest days in law school, he was found to be a plagiarist. He, when he ran, uh, and I think it was 1988, he plagiarized Neil Kinnock's speech. He lied to the public about his uh, law record, his GPA, his scholarship, his ranking in the class. He's always done that, always. One of the first things he said, Jack, was that there were no vaccinations until he took over. And that he, you know, and when there were a million plus a day, and I think 17 to 18 million were vaccinated the day he took office. So he does that all of the time. And you're right about this 450,000. And all he was basically saying to America was, this is so absurd that people break the law. The Many of them come across and incur huge cost on the American social fabric when you come illegally and you reside illegally and that pattern of lawbreaking becomes normative. And I'm speaking out in a rural area where in my lifetime, I think I've had three people I know very well have been killed by illegal aliens. I've had illegal aliens come in and run off the road on five occasions and destroy property and leave the scene of the accident. And I have been hit by an illegal alien when my daughter was 12 and have uh, him flee the scene of the accident, which I, whom I caught, brought back. And then I had a sympathetic local police officer not record that incident. So I couldn't get insurance for my car in sympathy. So this idea that somehow we Americans owe people something for breaking law is it's not just intolerable. It's psychedelic. It's surreal. And nobody supports it. So he lies because he knows he's doing it. So he says, well, it's some. Um, and, and I think it was Peter Ducey said, well, if it's $4,499, I guess, or you know what I mean? Or $4,050 minus $1, I suppose he thinks he's telling the truth. But he lies. Yes, he does. He does all the time. Always has, always will. Well, Victor... The uh, polls don't lie, or I should say the voting booth. And it was quite a, an indictment of Democrat lunacy across the board experienced uh, this past Tuesday. We'll get to talking about these elections, but we'll start right now. But before we do, you, you wrote uh, your most recent column for American Greatness, and I recommend our listeners go to American Greatness website. It's titled Trump Nearing the Crossroads. And if we could just talk about Donald Trump 
pre-election day. And then later we'll talk about how election days really affect Donald Trump. In Trump nearing the crossroads, you begin, the left may not wish to admit it, but the fortunes of a once more abundant Donald Trump of January 2021 have now largely recovered, even before the stunning gubernatorial victory of Republican Glenn Youngkin of Virginia. How and why? And you give five reasons on the how and why. But then also separately, Victor, you wrote towards the end of this piece, would Trump ever be content with becoming the senior statesman, basking in the credit of rebooting the Republican Party from a stereotyped wealthy corporate party into a populist nationalist movement of the middle class of all races and ethnicities? I'm really interested, Victor, and I'm sure our listeners are, on hearing your fuller thoughts on that. Could Trump really be a senior statesman? But then also the main point of your article about Trump, that his fortunes had recovered largely even before votes were cast on election day. So talk to us about these two principal points of this piece titled Trump nearing the crossroads. Well, there was a lot of things going on, but June... January 6th, of course, the Capitol, I mean, even though the narrative of arms insurrection, people arrested with weapons, often are sickening, killed and bashed a skull in by a Trumper, five people dead, conspiracy was all a lie. We know that. I don't want to get into it. We've got into it in detail before. And then how the Republicans lost two Senate seats in Georgia, in part, Trump was culpable for going down there and either suggesting implicitly or explicitly not to vote because the system was rigged, or when he had Loeffler and Purdue on the stage, he obsessed about himself, the injustices done him rather than the socialist takeover that would hurt the entire nation if these two candidates won, and they did win. So he was People were angry at him. And then all of a sudden, things started to happen. Joe Biden, first of all, said that the president is responsible for the 390,000 deaths. Every one of them could have been prevented. And he said that, Jack, because the the virus was waning. We were going to get up to 3 million. People were telling Joe Biden, don't do anything. It's forecast to be 3 million vaccinations a day. And he thought that we were told Moderna and Pfizer were 96%. So good old Joe from Scranton thought, wow, I'm going to just blame Trump for everything. Little did he know that the vaccinations would wear off. Little did he know a Delta variant would appear and have breakthrough cases. Little did he know that no president is responsible, neither him nor Trump, for each individual death. And now here we sit. Nine months and two weeks later, and Joe Biden's number of people who have died, I want to be very specific, the 300 um, and about, I think there's 770,000, so 360,000, 370, somewhere around there that died under Joe Biden's watch per diem is higher than when the cases started appearing to the end of Trump's tenure per diem. So- that helps Trump. He's not just the guy that gave us COVID and perpetuated. Joe Biden's done no better. Number two, let's face it, the January 6th thing was exposed. It was a terrible riot. It was buffoonish of people, but you don't put people in solitary confinement in deplorable conditions and have to have a federal judge send marshals in there to inspect and something's going wrong. That narrative is out. The other narratives that Trump said 
everybody said, you know, he's just crazy, i.e., the Russian thing was a complete hoax, B, the Hunter laptop was real, C, these 50 intelligence officers who are claiming that Russian disinformation is no more accurate than the lie that it's not Hunter Biden's thing to begin with. So what I'm getting at is a lot of things that Trump said actually turned out to be true, and the bipartisan establishment was lying. And even the conditions under which he was impeached, everybody's looking at that. Number four, Trump cannot tweet. Trump cannot post on Facebook. Trump does not have access to his 90 million person audience on a minute by minute date. How does that translate, Jack? Right now, if he had that, right now, meaning the last month, if he had that access, right. he may well have been tweeting the entire time during the McAuliffe-Yunkin race, and he might have been saying things like this, saying, I'm, I'm using an archaic word, tweeting or posting, McCall's an idiot. He's a crook. This is rigged. This is why I really won Virginia. And then people would have been asking Youngkin, what do you what do you say this minute on what Donald Trump said? If, if he criticized Trump, he would lose some of that support. It was absolutely key that he get 80 percent plus in those red counties. And if he approved them, then he might lose this constituency of moderates and even Democrats that were angry about other issues like education or transgender restrooms, et cetera. But the fact that he was silenced meant everybody thought he's nowhere, but he's everywhere. The Democrats are talking about him nonstop. Right. But when they keep saying he's so bad, I haven't seen a tweet. He hasn't said anything outrageous. But, you know, when I think about it, I look at gas prices. I look at you know, what Afghanistan was before and after. I start looking at inflation then and now. I start looking at the border then and now. And it was good. And now it's bad. So that was a big change. And that has helped him. The comparison with the first nine months and the, the veracity that the truth, the actuality, I should say, that he can't communicate like he did. Right. And if Twitter really wanted to destroy Donald Trump, get back at him, they would just open his accounts wide open. Yeah. And I hope one of the lessons of the, the Yunkin victory is to all Republicans. I'm not taking a stance whether Trump should run or not, but it's, it applies to Trump. It would try to others. But even though it's more germane to Trump is that you can be very, very MAGA in your agendas. They all you have to be now. You've got to be tough. Fire in the belly. Yunkin was merciless on this crazy critical race theory education stuff and Merrick Garland, et cetera. But because they control all the levers of influence, which we've gone over so many times from Silicon Valley to Hollywood to, you know, the media to academia, you've got to be very precise where you shoot. That's a metaphor, not a, a call to violence. I mean, when you have a broadside, you have to be very careful. You don't want to go down a cul-de-sac or you, you, you get caricature. So you want to be, I know, economical in your expression. And Donald Trump's got to learn that. And we all know it, that he needs to learn it. So I think that was the message of the election, that good agenda, Trump style of anger, but no gratuitous tweets that you have to explain, explain and explain and then get off message because the media is waiting for that to happen. And they tried to egg Yunkin in on it. They tried to trick him. They tried to trap him. You've got to tell us about Trump, 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 Trump. And he never took the bait. Right.
he really did need every vote. It was quite a close election when all was said and done. Not earlier in the night, but that, as the night went on, you kept seeing the percentage of difference narrow. Kind of reminded me of you know previous elections where it always seems the Republican candidate, like in Jersey on Tuesday night, out of nowhere, this guy's leading. And then as the night goes on, he slips below 50%. Well, Victor, on that latter point about Trump and what Trump has to learn, and that sort of touches what you wrote here about him possibly becoming a senior statesman. Do you think he could possibly right now think that far ahead, think that, yeah, I want to be a senior statesman? As they say in Greek, men dare on the one hand, on the other hand, let's go on the one hand yeah. that might discourage him from running again. Number one, he's going to be 78. While he's had spectacular energy and health, anybody's 78, I'm 68. And I can tell you that the very idea, because I've been traveling a lot lately, the very idea that I'd have to do that 10 years from now is, is insane. So that is a, is, a, is a real thing. And that's going to be more important because of the cognitive challenges of Joe Biden. People are going to say, Joe Biden may not be unique. I think he is unique, but we don't. We got to be very careful. But this job mm-hmm. is demanding. Number two, for all the whines and accusations and smears and slurs and slanders of the left, remember they were going to invoke the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Right. Right. Donald Trump took a bath. People boycotted his properties, his hotels, his golf courses. He wasn't whatever people think of him. He he was a good businessman and he couldn't practice business. He had surrogates do it. And he probably, I've been reading estimates of a half billion to $2 billion in losses. Maybe they're paper, maybe they're not. So he's got to ask himself, do I want to go through this again and maybe endanger this entire empire versus maybe from preliminary reports, if I have a new social media empire and people are already buying and investing, it could be a multi-billion dollar enterprise that would rescue my other properties and businesses rather than imperil them if I were president. So that's a very important. Then he's got family members. All of them were attacked and defamed and really treated terribly in the way that even Hunter Biden hasn't been. Right. And they're not culpable like Hunter Biden. So these are things that would suggest to me that he might not want to do it. And then, of course, There's a lot of people, not just around Pompeo and DeSantis and Cotton and Haley that are talking to him, but people in the Congress, and I know this for a fact in the Senate, and they're saying to him privately, carefully, in measured, because let me just stop here and put a dash. Everybody knows that if he wants to run, he will likely get the Republican nomination. You cannot stop. I don't care what a pundit says. You will not be able to stop him. He's got that much grassroots support. But they are telling him, just because you can be the nominee, do you really want to do it? Because we're going to have to get in this big fight. And you get mad, but you don't get even with him. You don't fire Fauci. You don't fire Millie. You don't fire Comey. You just get angry. And you yell and scream, but you should have fired him. And he he probably will say to them, yeah, but I was an, a novice. And so people are saying that to him. And But on the plus side, very quickly, he's saying, Jack, okay, I'm going to be eight years wiser than when I went in. And I know how the swamp works now. I know who you have to get rid of and who is loyal to you. And I'm going to go in there running. And they've tried the Russian collusion and the impeachments 
and the 25th Amendment and the coup talk and all that stuff. And I'm ready for it. So that's one. And then two, look at the record. I did all of this, whether it's energy, whether it's the economy, whether it's the pre-COVID employment, GDP, gas and oil production, uh, the wall, the secure border, the foreign policy. It was all great. And so he's going to say, I can get even better than that. And those are those are. And then there's the ego of Donald Trump. He must be very angry and frustrated. I know I would be that after going through all of that ordeal, he created a winning agenda that mm-hmm. fueled Biden. And to the degree Biden is not a total failure, he's 99.9999. But that 1.00001 is because of Donald Trump's agenda. And he knows that any Republican that were to beat Biden, Dash, Harris, Dash, a third party, a third candidate, much more likely than either of them, that person would run on the his recreation and his rebooting of the Republican Party and get credit. So that's hard to take, but he's not given any credit by the media or anybody. So he might want to do that. I don't know the answer, but I think the answer will come sooner or later because we're going to see it very soon. Right after the midterms, traditionally, you start to see candidates, if they don't announce, at least they're de facto announcing. And they're going to have to some point, Jack, I'd say right around... 14 months from now, they're going to have to attack Donald Trump if he's in the race. That's just the way politics are. You know it better than I do. And then we'll see what happens. Well, Victor, let's talk about election night directly now. And and on uh, victorhanson.com, your website, and I, I want to recommend, I've done this before to our listeners, to go there, subscribe. It's $5 a month, $50 for a year. And there is a significant amount of original content there that can only be read there. And that this includes the next piece we're going to talk about, uh, last night's election, why Glenn Youngkin won. And you wrote this on November 3rd. Victor, I'll read just a few tiny little things here. And this is you know, how the, be- the piece begins. Uh, yes, yes, the Glenn Youngkin campaign was supercharged by local and state issues. No Virginians, like no Americans, want to be called racists. In fact, they voted in their first African-American and Latino statewide elected officials. Classical anti-racism, ignoring the anti-racism, racism of the left. I think that was really a critical point you make here. But Victor, talk about why he won. And then let's get into a few things. What does it mean for the Republican Party that he won and that Citarelli almost won in New Jersey, which may be even a more profound, even though he lost, it's being seen in some quarters as even a more profoundly disturbing sign for Democrats, that New Jersey governor's race. What does it mean for Republicans, for Democrats? What does it mean for the left? Because you ask a question here later in the piece, will Democrats learn anything from this amazing defeat in a solidly blue state. You say, no, I'm not going to explain why you said no. You can do that. So why did he win? And then let's look at some of the what you think the ramifications are for these different segments of society, including the woke advocates. I'll ask, answer the first question, the last question first. I was asked that, I think, on election night by Laura Ingram. And I said, no, they didn't. I, I think quoted the Bourbons, they've forgotten nothing, they learned nothing. And we knew what they were going to do. They were going to say that it was racism is why you won, 
or Virginia traditionally is opposite of the Washington political of Washington's Democrat. It goes Republican and vice versa. They, they did that. That Kerry McAuliffe was a problematic candidate. They did that. That black people were discouraged from voting. They did that. Or that it was just a one-off. It didn't matter. They did that. So we know that they can't accept the truth. And as revolutionaries, and they are Jacobins, they never feel that the fault is a failure to be moderate, they always feel that the fault lies and they were not zealous enough. So I think I, I said that and I wrote that. And sure enough, AOC, I think yesterday said, we we lost because we weren't left wing enough. So they're going to go down that. And of course, the press secretary filling in for circling back. Saki basically said, this was all racist, just like Obama said, there was nothing there. So they're not going to learn. They're going to keep doing it, doing it, doing it. As far as why he won, there's a lot of reasons, but I think most people have covered them. And that is that we haven't had a chance to weigh in on the Biden nine months. And, right. and you know, there's been a few special elections. But when you look at Eric Adams on a law and order in, in New York and a close race in New Jersey, it should have been a blowout. And a guy with no political experience in a blue state defeating an old Clinton hand with all the money and media behind him. And then you look at Minneapolis, you get start to get a picture. And there was a, a race down in Texas the same way. And people say they don't just disagree with what Biden is doing. They're saying this is nuts. I don't like a porous border, but this guy doesn't even want a border. I don't want people illegally coming into my country Why other people wait, but this guy's going to give him $450,000. I don't mind getting out of Afghanistan after 20 years, slowly, deliberately, soberly, but this guy just humiliated us. I don't mind transitioning to wind and solar, and but he doesn't want nuclear. He doesn't want hydro. He wants to destroy gas and oil. He's cut back on our own energy development while he begs the Saudis and the Russians to get their hands dirty and produce grimy fuel that he says we're too good to have. We've never had that. So I'm getting at, Jack, is that they look at this first disaster and they say, this is self-induced. This isn't Katrina. This isn't the Iraq. This isn't a war. This is self-induced. And so, and then they, when they get angry, they hear you're a racist or Donald Trump, Donald Trump. So they were frustrated. When, when Youngkin comes in and basically says to people, well, you're angry about these local board and Luton, Luton County. That's not a statewide issue that might have won, except when he got into the transgender rape thing and he got into the board then he was able to connect that with that frustration. And there were some direct links that tied the two concerns nationally and statewide. One of them was Merrick Garland. He came in and he was he made a fool of himself under congressional inquiry. And he basically said, I'm not going to apologize. A bunch of people called up and wanted those guys in Virginia to shut up. So they met with the White House staffers. They called them terrorists. They talked about the Patriot Act. They sent it over to me. I called the FBI. So he was able to say, this stuff is affecting us in our daily lives. Shelves are empty. Board members, these people are crazy. And then more importantly, that was the message, but the mechanism, the means to get to that end were very subtle. He not once criticized Donald Trump overtly. Not once. He ran on a lot of the cultural issues. He didn't avoid them. He didn't emphasize in your face abortion. 
but people who were attacking him really did sense that he was against it. And they sensed that he was too close to Trump. And he didn't run away from that. And he won the red states, the red counties at a level equal to superior of those that Trump won against Biden. Okay. He dealt with Trump. And as I said earlier, it was made easier because Trump wasn't tweeting and, and being vociferous and braggadocious in the, in the accustomed manner that he is. And then two, he was not Mitt Romney, Jack. No. He was not John McCain said, no, no, we don't do that. We're above that. We don't say those things. And he wasn't Mitt Romney and said, well, you know, uh, you know, 47 percent, I'll never win those guys. You know, he said, we're going to win this state. It's not about me. This is a movement. It's not a Republican party. This is a, a grassroots, not a top down movement. But he was angry and he was fired, but he did it with a smile. So he didn't look vindictive. So what that meant was. For the three to five percent or six percent in the suburbs who wanted to go, you know, to PTA meetings or carpool, they could say they were voting for Youngkin without being socially ostracized. He was acceptable because he was a, a friendly guy and he had an agenda that they liked, but they didn't have to say, well, I like the agenda, but I don't like the personality of the tweets. And right. he, he thread the needle and he offered a paradigm, as I said earlier, for both Trump and anybody who wants to challenge him, that that will work a little bit more so than getting in these cul-de-sac fights. And it was a brilliant campaign for a guy with no political experience and who was probably vastly outspent, even though he's a quite wealthy guy. Wow. And uh, I think that's why the Democrats were so angry right now. They thought, wow, New Jersey, Minnesota, New York, Virginia. This is not Tennessee, Utah, right. Wyoming. These are the bastions. These are the heart. And I, I think had this not been a recall in California, but a regular campaign for governor, and had this movement been in existence, which it was, and that Republicans had a lot of time, and had they been able to get a candidate like him, then it would have been a very close race in California, because the same issues are starting to develop here. Right. Over the mandate and things like that. So it was it was a very good night for the Republicans. And finally, the consequences are cinema and mansion. What are they going to do? Are they going to say they're going to go back to their 50-50? I shouldn't say mansion, 70-30 red constituency and maybe 55-45 right. red in Arizona and say to them, yeah, I, I think the answer was that we didn't spend enough money. That's why people were angry and, you know, that the Democrats lost. We Democrats lost because we're, we're angry. We didn't spend enough money. We should have told Youngkin, we want to get this build back better bill and borrow another three or four trillion dollars. That's what they're saying. Do they want to be part of that, of their colleagues? They're all saying that. Biden didn't have an achievement. Well, you know, when you're running 7% inflation and you've got de facto zero rates and you've already getting close to $2 trillion annual deficit and you want to borrow another three to $5 trillion, that's not going to appeal to Arizonans and West Virginians. And yet that's what they're going to have to sign on to. Yeah. And then the second thing is, what would you do if you're one of the 100 Congress people who got elected in 2018 or 2020 or years before in a district that's, say, minus or plus two Trump? Is, are you really going to go back and say, you know what, I vote for critical racial theory and I, yeah. I, 
about transgender that I don't think so. Or I think I want to defund the police or I don't have an argument. I think a lot of people are telling Nancy Pelosi the following. So, Nancy, what am I supposed to do when they say that I am in a party that wants to defund the police and let two million illegal aliens come in this year? And they're going to give 450,000 of these hard strapped taxpayers who can't afford gas or steak or have empty shell. They have to fork out money to people who broke the law. What do you want me to tell my constituents? Because that's the albatross you hanging around my neck. Yeah, I think it's already there, Victor. I don't know how you you'll know, see if this like bill. They'll see if this bill makes it. But this if is, I was, a, uh, I wouldn't vote for it if I was in a swing district. I, I'm not talking I, about the merits. I'm just talking about the politics of it. I absolutely agree. I still think, though, that Goose might be cooked. But just, just so you know, speaking of Cook, my former colleague, National Charlie Cook, has written a little piece. I'm just quickly here. This is up within the last hour or two. Pelosi prepares to send her most vulnerable members to the slaughter. And he writes, the Associated Press is now reporting that unchastised by Tuesday night's route, Nancy Pelosi plans to ready the House of Representatives for a debate and vote on a revised draft of President Joe Biden's now $185 trillion domestic policy package. And those in quotes, the decision the AP suggests is intended to, quote, show voters the party can deliver on its priorities. So. Yeah, madness is. Uh, well, yeah, they're going. What is that going to do to a congresswoman in a swing district? They're going to say to Nancy Pelosi, either under their breath or overtly. Well, yeah, Nancy, you've had a great run. You're a multi, multi, multi millionaire, and you're retiring as an octogenarian, and so you'd like to retire with a great victory, but you might not, and it doesn't mean anything to you that you don't. But me, I'm a young Nancy Pelosi. And I will lose everything if I get kicked out of Congress. You don't care. So, yeah, you want to go out with a blaze of glory. You pass this and say, well, the last thing I did was I saved Joe Biden, but you destroyed me by saving Joe Biden. And so and then what are you going to do? Are you going to go back to upstate New York and get a job? I don't know, as a lobbyist? No, you're going to go up to your Napa state and look at your vineyard and live in your Italian palazzo or commute back and forth to your New York mansion. And you don't represent me. So I don't think that's going to be so persuasive. It might be persuasive uh, for a way, 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 way down, cut down version, but it doesn't seem to me it's going to work. All right. Well, Victor, we have one more item to discuss on today's episode of The Traditionalist, and that will be about Winsome Sears. And we'll talk about her right after this important message. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com 
and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. We're back with the traditionalist. By the way, the traditionalist is one of the three titles of Victor Davis Hanson show podcast. The other that I do with Victor is the classicist. And then the great Sammy Wink does the culturalist. And uh, we may be coming out with a more frequent uh, episodes in the near future. We'll, we'll see. I think we can make that happen, Victor. So, uh, but let's talk about Winsome Sears, who was elected the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, a black woman by her own account on election night. She calls her story the, that of the American dream. Her parents came over from Jamaica with you know just a few bucks in their pocket. She entered the Marine Corps. Actually, she was raised in the Bronx. So I like that aspect of her. She had been in the state legislature. They gerrymandered her out of a seat, but here she ran and just a really appealing woman. Now, I like your thoughts on her, but also this. MSNBC mouthpiece, Michael Eric Dyson was on Joy Reid's show. And here's what he has to say about Winsome Sears, a black woman. The problem is here, they want white supremacy by ventriloquist effect. There is a black mouth moving, but a white idea running on the runway of the tongue of a figure who justifies and legitimates the white supremacist practices. Victor, they might as well have called her Aunt Thomasina. There seems to me to be nothing more lefty hates than a black woman who happens to be conservative. Great thing happened Tuesday night. I think she's a great lady. What are your thoughts about her and some of this leftist reaction? If you think about it, and I I listened to the whole crazy thing on a video, it was uh, it was really racist because it suggested that there's an innate black trait of inbred, if I could use that racist term to talk about racism, that people want to be obsequious to white people and that they don't have the innate independence that he does. So he was basically saying she's playing the role of a typecast or a typical Negro. I think he used the word Negro, in fact. And so it was really pretty racist. And I'll be a little go out on a limb a little bit and said, so why does he or Joy Reid or all these very privileged, very wealthy, very established people who America has given all sorts of opportunity that in some cases they earned all of it, but nevertheless, like they've given anybody else, they should be somewhat appreciated. Why are they so angry and why do they hate her so much? And I think part of it is that we've got to remember, Jack, the woke movement is top down. It's not bottom up. This are not a lot of poor people from the inner city that are out in the street protesting. There's not a lot of people in Madera County that are Mexican-American or illegal aliens that are out protesting. There's not a bunch of, much less I need to say, poor white people from Tulare or Bakersfield, California protesting. This is a movement that says we're going to reorder the spoil system of Hollywood, of the NBA, of entertainment, of the advertising industry, of movie and TV roles, who gets to be dean, who gets to be provost, who gets into Stanford, who doesn't get into Princeton. We're going to talk about foundations, corporate boardrooms, Wall Street, and we want greater representation. And then it's a bunch of wealthy, wealthy white people on the coast, liberals, who 
or behind it and say, yeah, 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 because it's not going to affect me. Because I have ways of getting my kid into Stanford in most years. I have a way of, of not going to the public schools and dealing with teachers unions and the lack of charter schools or school choice. I don't care. So this is a fight between pedigrees over scraps. Number one. And this is why they're, they're so afraid of somebody like Winston Sears, because what she says is, this is a scrap between very wealthy people who think alike but don't represent people. And it's racist and they cannot stand free will because if they could stand free will, what would happen to African-American people? They would follow the traditional trajectory of, let's say, given Jack's ancestry, you know this well, Italian-Americans. So as I've said before, if your name is de Blasio or Giuliani or... I don't know, Cuomo, you can't predict a person's political affiliations based on their Italian heritage. You used to be able to, but not now. And that's happening slowly, slowly in the Latino community, right. even more slowly in the black. Community. But if that should happen, then these guys are out of a job yeah. because they're no longer professional victims or the oppressed. And they can't say, get on there and scream and yell and say ridiculous things. And everybody says, you know what? I can't say anything. I can't say that this Dyson guy is making a fool of himself because that would be racist. And I'd be attacked and I'd be my career. They created this woke movement for a careerist purpose. She comes along and says, I don't have anything to do with it. And guess what? I got elected by a overwhelmingly white constituency in a liberal bastion of grievance politics. So what I just showed you guys is talk all you want about on MSNBC, CNN, tweet, Twitter, Facebook, all of that it didn't affect me because I don't need you because this isn't a racist country. People look at me, they're not using me. They like me because I was the better qualified candidate. What I did was not uttered by Mr. Dyson and Joy Reid that she was the better candidate. Nobody said that. Right. Or that she was the bravest woman on the whole field, first black woman in the history of Virginia or the Latino attorney general. They didn't say that. They had to say that she was a token or she played the innately subservient, step and fetch it black person. That's what they were saying. Right. And she blew up their entire paradigm. And how funny that the party of racism elected two people who were not white statewide in Virginia and the white party didn't elect one. Right. And so uh, the, the white sensitive liberal party, I should say. So she really posed a threat. And then the, finally, remember 2004 when Barack Obama, he was given a chance and everybody said, he's kind of going to be like Harold Ford. He's the next Harold Ford. That is, you know, what I won't quote the racist things that Joe Biden himself and Harry Reid right. said, but that was the assumption of the quasi-racist liberal elite that, you know, he would be articulate and he would do this. And so what he did is he outsmarted him. He came in in 2004. He's very good delivery. And he basically gave a conservative speech. There is no blue, blue state America. There is no red. There is no white. There is no blue. There is an America. Remember that speech? It just blew everybody out of the water. Right. It made Kerry's, you know ponderousness looks stupid as sanctimonious. And so everybody then said, this is our guy because he loves America. It was all fake and it was all a front. 
and he never made that without even taking a breath that led, you know, just four years later to clingers and get, get in their face and take a gun to a knife fight. And Trevon's not the kid that I never had and punish them at the polls. But for the moment, people got fooled and, but she's sincere. So she speaks with the same rhetorical abilities, Obama, and she has that message, but she's sincere. So I would imagine that depending on how she does in governance and given the fact there's a one-term limit, at least you can't be consecutively reelected. She could be the next governor in four years, but I would see that a lot of people would court her for either a cabinet post or vice presidency, even if she does well. Yeah. Well, I was just talking before about likability in politics and Youngkin has that and she certainly has that. And it's an important attribute to have many people vote because I'm voting for that person. I like, I like him. Why? It's just likable. So uh, that's human nature. And she's, uh, she's, she loves the United States, Jack. She said that again, again, it wasn't fake. She said, I love this country. I was a Marine. I, this was the chance of my life. Have you ever heard that come out of Million Omar or AOC or any of the squad or any of those people. Nobody ever said Elizabeth Warren ever said that. No. Bernie Sanders ever said that. No. It's I got three houses, Bernie Sanders, and this is a terrible country. Or it could be a good country if it got back to its socialist uh, intended roots or Elizabeth Warren. I made a, a little tiny profit flipping houses, but this is a terrible country. Yeah. Or Joe Biden, I'm a multi-multi-millionaire with three houses, but this is a terrible country. On 180000 a year salary. Yeah, still. exactly. <laughs> well, well, Victor, that's about all the time we have, except our usual kind of wrap-up items. First of all, regarding the dying citizen, folks can find on victorhanson.com a link to it. If you haven't purchased uh, the book yet, please do consider doing that. I wanted to read one of the uh, reviews from Amazon by a, a woman named uh, Linda Galella. And this is, uh, has been, she writes, are you a resident or a citizen? This is the question you will be able to answer after finishing the dying citizen towards the end of her review, which she gives all, all the chapters. She says, each of the chapters is full of historical data leading up to our current situation with enough documentation to fill the last 20% of this volume. In in my opinion, the best part of this book is the author's epilogue. Hansen had caused to pen a lengthy update during the final editing process. In this chapter, he pulls all the pieces together and summarizes, including the last few months, quote, the stakes were no less than the preservation of the American Republic itself, end quote, a worthy read, five stars, Many reviews, five stars. Speaking of five-star reviews, Victor, for the podcast, our friends who listen and then go to iTunes, where you still have a five-star rating. I don't know anyone else that has five stars with this many reviews, and you do. Some people leave comments. We read them, and here are two quick. Maybe it's the angry reader that... I've created no, no, deterrence. No, somebody, no, no, somebody, actually somebody of uh, B-A-M-D-D-S. So I assume that's B-A-M who's a dentist, D-D-D-S wrote. <laughs> Professor Hansen, to give balance to those messages from angry reader, I will say thank you, thank you, thank you. Your three weekly podcasts give voice to the inner fury I cannot as eloquently express 
warms my heart in soon-to-be snow-covered Michigan with much respect, B-A-M-D-D-S. And thank you, B-A-M. And then another from Miss Laura Lynn, who writes, uh, thank you for another installment of the thoughts of VDH. Sammy Wink always puts a smile on my face. Isn't that nice? Sammy Wink is a great host for The Culturalist. As for me, Victor, I just would like to let people know they're interested in the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic, where I hang my hat. Hey, centerforcivilsociety.com. And I also write a weekly email newsletter. It's kind of fun. Gives you about 12 links and excerpts to worthwhile readings on the web. And you can uh, subscribe to that at civilthoughts.com. So we thank our listeners for listening. We thank those who leave reviews on iTunes. And I guess other than that, Victor, we should say thank you. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you, Jack, for hosting it. And thank everybody again for listening. I very much appreciate it.